And we're live with our 198th episode of Absolute AppSec. I'm Ken Johnson at CK Tricky on Twitter, joined by my co-host Seth Law at Seth Law on Twitter. Seth, say hi. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode. We've shifted times a little bit today, but are happy to be back as always. Um, that is to accommodate our guest today. Um, we'll introduce Lar here shortly. Uh, as far as announcements, uh, we have both, um, I know we've talked about it a few times, but uh, we are going to be offering practical secure code review at DEF CON trainings in April up in Bellevue, Washington. I think it's April 13th and 14th are the days. If you're looking for an opportunity to come take that training, that'd be a great one. Um, as always, join Slack if you want more information on that or just ping Ken and I via DM on one of the many different channels that we're on if you have questions. Uh, outside of that, there are a couple other conferences that are coming up. We are working on a few other opportunities for that. We're looking at, looking to get back down to Australia at some point as well. Um, there's been some discussions of that later this year. Um, maybe loop that in with some of the other DEF CON trainings that are happening throughout the course of the year. So watch this space for other training opportunities. And um, we are going to have sponsor packages as well coming up for Absolute AppSec here in the near term. Um, Ken and I and Aaron have been working through the details and what that actually looks like. Um, and I think that's everything from a announcement perspective, Ken, unless you think I'm missing something. No, I, I don't. Uh, and yes, no, we really are for the, for the addressing the Slack comments. Yes, we are really working on it. We have like a pamphlet and everything. So it's for real that it's for realsies. Okay. We're not just working on it. We're, we've made progress. So. Yes, yes. It, it takes jokers. time. Yeah, when we have, you know, when everyone has day jobs and other stuff going on, it takes longer than I than we expect at times. But we're getting there. Um, yeah. Well, good. Uh, then you know, without further ado, um, yeah, let's let's introduce Lara. Lara, thank you for joining us. Thank you for accommodating us. Uh, I know with the time zones and everything like that. Um, yeah I, yeah, I mean, Ken, did you have some uh, uh, context there yeah, for introducing Laura? Go ahead. Right. So Laura is the CEO of SafeStack. Um, you're also, you know, a well-known speaker. Uh, I think there's there's no question to that. Um, I think so. If I'm not mistaken, you were born in the UK, but you live. This is the part I might be mistaken on. I know you were born in U the UK, but are you in? You're in Australia. Are you in Melbourne? Or are you somewhere else? In I'm in New, Zealand. in New Zealand. Oh, you're in New Zealand. Uh, oh I am. I'm I totally even had worse. That wrong. Yeah, I. So yeah, you had far away. I'm far away plus <laughs> one with hobbits. So yeah, we're yeah New Zealand. I'm in the very far north, so it's subtropical. Um, it's nine a.m. here. So thank you so much, everyone, for juggling your times to make the time zones work. It's we're very far in distance and time zones. No, thank you. You're. I. Hey, we appreciate you. You joining. And you have a, I mean, so there's so many things we can dig into, right? Like, uh, there's actually a lot of things, especially uh, as you, you went, I went through your blog, there's some things I wanted to chat about, but I think let's start with just your background. Like, how did you, you know, how did you become a founder and CEO of SafeStack? But, but be, you know, I mean, your journey into this space, I mean, how, how did you get into technology? Not just, you know, how you became a, a CEO and founder, I guess, is like, what's sure. your origin story? Oh, you know, I love a good origin story. I'd love to say that I had a great plan and it was all laid out and I went to the right school at the right time. Uh, that's none of that is true. Um, I wanted to be a lawyer, um, clearly failed that horribly. Um, I actually found myself at 16 needing to have a job and, and look after my own financial interests. So at 16, I in my hometown, my hometown in the middle of the UK, you've never heard of, so don't worry about it. Um, it's famous for two things, teenage pregnancy and car theft which is not great for planning your career options. So uh, I had a choice of working in like retail or a McDonald's or whatever, which, you know, no disrespect there, it pays the bills. Or EDS, which I don't think exists anymore, is now HP, um, had an apprenticeship program for software developers. So I 
went to an interview. I'd never really done any coding before at all. Um, uh, but they had me solving puzzles. That was pretty much the interview process. They gave you puzzles and off you went. And I, I, I got that job. And so age 16, I became probably the most ill-advised junior COBOL developer in the taxation system in the UK. Um, so I, I spent from, you know, my first years doing really archaic languages, but really getting really deep into big scale financial systems. And I've sort of meandered around since then. Um, I did my college um, just a little bit later than everyone else. And I decided to do artificial intelligence because that seemed cool. Little did I know I was 15 years too early for actually getting a job in it. Um, and so I kind of, I moved on and eventually I made it into the intelligence service in the UK. So I'm um, doing the software side of supporting things like counterterrorism. And um, I found that I was very good at finding the bugs in software, not intentionally. I just, I was curious if there were six buttons, I wanted to put 10 fingers on them and see what happened. And so my boss, who he was very nice and he said, hey, um, we like you and all, but this is really annoying. Um, have you considered doing security? There's a whole team of people like you over there. And so off I went and I became a penetration tester. So I've been everything from COBOL, Perl, Java developers, then through to penetration tester and red teamer. Um, and now I live in this weird hybrid space where I still write software, but my primary focus is how we build amazing things because there's some crazy amazing technology out there. And we put security through it without getting in the way, without kind of taking the innovation out of it all. Uh, so, yeah, it's been a, a wobbly, strange adventure, but one I wouldn't change for the world. Well, and continuing down that path, I mean, I am curious because one of the things I was I'm always curious about is, you know, as companies grow, the roles of the founders, um, especially the CEO, change. I had read an article that was super interesting where it was like, you know what, I've got, I think you had said, uh, you've got backups for the for for everybody for re, so redundancy in, in the positions you had processes defined things were running smoothly and so it kind of becomes well what do i do next and i guess along those lines i'm curious you know how starting from the beginning how has your role changed over time um Oh, sure. Yeah, um, I think it's very uh, interesting. So, uh, yeah, yeah that, that blog post was a really interesting time for me. I got to take a month off my business and actually just travel with my children. And for the first week of it, I was horribly confused because I was so used to having to do everything that I was like, well, what do I do now? I must be failing because I'm not, you know, fighting fires. Um, when I first started off, so SafeStack started as a consultancy and in-person training company uh, a long time ago. Um, and we pivoted during COVID because for what we do, we're very high growth companies uh, all around the world. Um, but when COVID hit, everyone sort of, you know, did the turtle thing, went in their shell and protected exactly what they should do. Um, and so we were like, well, we can wait for it all to blow over or we could do what we'd always been talking about, but never had time. And so we, we decided to build a platform and kind of go into our, our big mission a little bit deeper. And back then I was literally like coding until 2 a.m., writing the platform, writing training courses, learning how to do marketing, which is just so far from my core yeah. skill set. It's untrue. Um, learning the basics of the financials of the company. Uh, and now, you know, bit by bit, those things have peeled away. I lost my GitHub access to our production repos the other day. Um, I, was, I was very sad, but also very happy. Um, it's how freeing it is that I know I can't break the system, at least without prior permission now. Um, so now my world is focused on, on the mission. So on what we're trying to achieve with the world, because we're a very mission focused company, um, and also research. So, um, I, I'm, I love what we do in AppSec, but the world of software development is going a lot faster than we are. And so what I like to do is I kind of try and sit on the very edge of what software is doing and go, all right, this is chaos and I love it. What's going on here? What could possibly go wrong? So bringing that kind of skill set we all have as AppSec people, you know, the least fun people at parties and taking it to the, the new wave of software in a way that we can then turn that into guidelines and conversations that we can have way earlier than we would have previously. Yeah, I believe the value proposition used to be, you know, we like, and I've had this discussion with a lot of people recently, which is like our value proposition seemed to be find the bugs, get the bugs fixed, 
And that was, that was a lot of it, right? Like, you know, mm -hmm. simplified doesn't work, doesn't scale, obviously. Um, education's a hard one. I mean, I, I'm curious cause we, we've had a, so on the training note, I mean, what, what training do you think is valuable for, um, so let's talk about the training you, you know, you've, you've done and then what you see to be valuable for organizations in the training awesome. space. Well, I, I think there's two sides to it. And I think we try and muddle uh, AppSec or security training in general into like one big bucket. And I really don't think that's the case. I think there are certain roles and certain people who need to go really super deep on specific things. Like, you know, your code review course that's coming up is going to be fantastic for those roles that are, you know, spending quite a lot of time knee deep in the code looking for those edge cases and their bugs. We, um, we have a mission of the team of 30 million software developers. Uh, and now when we say the team of 30 million software developers, we mean security-minded software developers. So we're not saying they have to be full-time security folk. What we're saying is that they already build software every day and they already mind observability, performance, scaling, usability, accessibility. They just do that inherently because that's what good software is. What we're trying to do is bring security into those illities and give the minimum skills and knowledge needed all the way through the life cycle so that there's this general foundation. So this groundswell of security is just there. It's just what we do because it's good software. And so that frees up the specialists on the team to really go deep instead of having to do all of the foundation. There is approximately 30 million software developers on the planet right now. It grows at a rate of about 1.6 million a year. Now imagine having all of those eyes, even just focused in a little way on security. Um, I don't want them to all, you know, go deep and be specialists, but even a little teeny tiny thing multiplied by 30 million people is huge. So, so training specific to the role, but more than that, um, giving a, uh, and so when you self, I, I want to clarify this point, because when you say foundation, mm. do you mean, um, yeah, I, do you mean more? I'll give you of, some examples uh, if you like. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, sure. Great, so we have courses at different levels, so foundation through to advanced, and they cover everything from, you know, we've got your standard types of, you know, common vulnerabilities in applications kind of stuff and mobile security, but we've also got things for software testers, so how to bring that to your automation testing world. And I don't mean run a pen testing tool. I mean write Cucumber-style software tests that think of security things. Um, That'll make Seth have... happy. It, yes, very much so. But yes, continue. Sorry. Um, continue, um, yes. <laughs> we have threat assessment and threat modeling, um, but not in the way that you need the perfect threat modeling diagram, but, you know, freeing people up and giving them the confidence to sit in a room and be that person that goes, yeah, but what happens if? Um, so everything we teach is very much from a development perspective. So we're not here to say, hey, your baby is ugly. You should feel bad and change your life. We're here to say your world is complex. You're building something amazing. Here's something to think about. Here's what you could do about it. But here's how that might impact all these other bits of your software. So we will talk about the impact on performance and scaling, uh, on usability of the security things we recommend so that you can find a middle ground. So it's um, we're less in that kind of just for the writing code part, which you traditionally see, I was top 10 style training, and more for the weaving it in through everything you do as a software engineering team. Well, so, and sorry, Seth, I, last question, because I know you, I can, I can you're good. Scott you're question. good. Keep going. Keep going. We've got time. We've got time. Um, yeah. But uh, so on, on one side, what are, what have you seen? We'll say training get right just to be nice. Like others that yeah. do training, what, what do they get right? Yeah, yeah. And what what you know, this is the one I'm really interested in. It's like what do you see where people go wrong with training? So uh, oh. what, what's what yeah. What's right, what's wrong? What's right, what's wrong? Um, and then firstly, there are some incredible training stuff out there, not just in security, but around the place, you know. Um, and what I like is the diversity that's coming through. So there are some people. Not all people, but some people love a gamified system and they love to compete with other people and they love to do a challenge and go, I'm on the leaderboard. And in some ways, to be honest, book bounty programs have become their own sort of training school for that, where people want to get better and they want to get their skills and they want to get to the top of the chart. Um, I love that there are um, more environments springing up where you can actually get stuck in to the technology. So they're simulating the technical stacks and you're not just thinking about the theory of getting uh, stuck in there. 
But I think on the training side, and we, you know, we struggle with this just as much as anyone else. Like, I don't think there's a training company that has it right yet. Um, and that's, we are quite conflicted as development teams. We are super busy. Um, we didn't sit down and do a course on performance and scaling. We learned about performance and scaling because it sucked. And we spent hours and hours and hours fixing it and dealing with the tickets. And so a lot of the skills that we take for granted as good, you know, advanced seniors, intermediates onwards, um, software engineers, they, they weren't school taught. They weren't taught in a classroom. And so we're competing with that sort of absorption. Now in security, we don't have the luxury of saying, we'll just get it wrong for five years, that's fine. Um, what could possibly go wrong? And then we'll all be good at it. That's, you know, that would be kind of wrong. And finding a way to bridge that. Uh, our development teams don't want to take an exam. They don't really, on the whole, care about getting a certificate or a qualification. They have too much to do in their week, no time to do anything else. And they want something super quick that gets really down to the nuts of it, that they can change the speed on, that they can go zooming to the bit that's relevant to them. Um, and that's, that's not how education has historically worked. Um, mm -hmm. You look at all the learning design folks and they're like, you know, this is not how we teach people. It's like, people's a big term and the engineering community, we're a bit different. So we're trying to navigate through that and find ways to, it's, it's almost minimum viable training, which kind of sounds like it's cheapening what people like us do. But it's not. It's it's the exact right message at the exact right time is what they need, um, and a safe way to learn things without falling over for real in the in the real environments in production. You know, to to be honest with you, now that I'm thinking about it, it's like when, when I've done the reverse of that, which is go and look at development tutorials of how to implement something. It's the exact same thing. Like I will speed it up. I'll go exactly uh -huh. to the part that's relevant to me and skip all of the rest. And yeah, that's 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 the exact approach I'm I take as a security person doing development. Absolutely, I will literally go find the transcript and Control F and search for the phrase I'm looking for, and then jump to the right bit of the video. Now, if I know that I do that as an engineer, then I have to build training that takes into account that my audience is probably less patient than I am. So that's, that's the whole kind of ethos about how we interact with our learners. There's 14,500 of them at this point, and they're a tough crowd. I love them dearly, but they're a tough crowd. Um, and so we want to, you know, try really hard to earn their respect so that it's not too much training. It's just the right amount that they can get to very, very quickly. I'm smiling because Seth and I had built a training platform before. This is uh, when we were, we were somewhere else working together. So um, the feedback is... <laughs> it's absolutely i mean yeah it's tough <laughs> it's tough <laughs> yeah oh i mean i love our community i wouldn't be anywhere else in the world but you know we are we're a special group of people and i love it um but it means that we need to be a bit more creative when we're trying to change behaviors and to give people skills and i don't just mean the most enthusiastic people i mean everyone from our juniors right the way through to those of us who've been around a few too many years and you know a bit set in our ways Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Um, so, I, I mean, along those lines, I, I like I'm interested in this transition that you made then from the on site and like how you've oh. actually, um, you know, taken the, the lessons learned from those on site trainings, because it, it does like this on demand training concept, this like minimal viable training that you're talking about, you're talking about like speak to me, you know, personally is like someone that goes through a lot of this and actually teaches a lot of developers. Um, I, you know, as I've trained over the years, that's one of the things that I've always run into is that the organizations, uh, like we end up dealing with a lot of like educational or HR side of things where they're like, Oh, we want you to come on site and we're going to take everybody away from their day job for two days and we're going to give them to you. And while they're sitting in our classroom, they are working on their regular job. They're, do, they're doing minimal viable training you know, on the job and will only pay attention to the relevant bits or the bits that they want to, which is frustrating as a trainer, right? So I, I'm wondering how what your experience was in moving from this, like uh, the in-person training to online training and how you've, you've translated those bits. Like what, what did that process look like for you? Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, there's part of me that still misses the in-person training because there is an energy in the room in a good class mm -hmm. that you cannot get elsewhere. 
Um, and it's something that I've done for a long time. And, you know, there's still parts of me on a roast and today would go back. Um, but what I found is it's exactly what you're saying. They've been pulled away from their jobs um, in some places, you know, a, a big bank or something where the pace might be a little bit slower. Then maybe they're a bit more focused. But if it's a high growth company, the, you know, two days is it's expensive. The opportunity cost of that training for them is huge. So I found with a two day course, for example, there was always a certain structure. The first two hours or the first half day, you were sort of almost having to prove your worth being in that room. You know, you've got to fight them away from Slack and away from whatever is on fire and get their eyes in that room. And not just the people who are, you know, your, your middle ground, but you've got to encourage those people who are going, oh, hang on, this is going to be way too hard for me. And they've already opted out because they're like, no, no, just too hard. And then the other people at the other end who are like, yeah, but I know more than you and I resent being here. Um, and that's, that's, a, that's a kind of that's a big spectrum Tough to crowd. connect with yeah. in, in a couple of hours. So that's your first job. If you fail at that, the rest of the course is a write-off. Your last couple of hours is how do I get some measurable change after this? Because this wonderful thing happens in a two-person course where eventually if you get their attention and they're focused on the course, everything else fades. But the second it comes back, it's sort of pushing out all that new knowledge that you've put in their brain. And, you know, it's like learning a musical instrument. They don't practice it. And therefore, it, you know, it all fades away. Um, I try and kind of take a similar approach with uh, the way that we do online training. So firstly, we have three different things we produce. We have courses and those courses are into little tiny micro modules. So between three minutes and 15 minutes in length, so you can dip in and out. Um, it helps with attention spans. And it also means people tend to just do them around things. For each one of those, we have an activity or a lab. Now, um, we started off doing the traditional capture the flag style labs, as every other platform does. We're now moving into doing uh, other kinds of labs, so uh, simulations of threat assessments, uh, testing environments. Now, we don't have any kind of models to copy on these, so there's a lot of experimentation. But what we're trying to do is create something hands-on for everything we teach, which is quite a broad selection. And then we have our community. Now, our community is intended to build on the courses so that the, the bit from an in-person course that I think is the hardest to replicate is those dynamic questions you get from the audience, where they have that moment of connection with your material and they say, hey, actually, I'm doing this thing. How would this relate to me right now? Or I, I see this differently. How does this work? Um, so we've created our community space and our seminars, which are a kind of a session with about 20, 30 people in, where you can come together and connect with other developers in the same position so that you can share your stories, but also that you can ask those questions and really kind of dynamically start going into those topics. Because I think without that, it can feel quite abstract. It can be hard to relate to what you're doing. But I think it's a work in progress. As with every other trainer, I don't think we'll ever get this right. I think we'll just continually be learning. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like it, I mean, it's going to continually involve, evolve depending on the organization, the learners that Absolutely. are in there, the, you know, who's in the course. I mean, like, I like this idea of the communities, like that feedback loop, right? That there is somewhere to actually go to ask those questions. I mean, mm. we see a lot of that, like after having discussions just in Slack and other places that kind of naturally yeah. occur or Twitter. Um, but it's, yeah, that, it's not quite the same as no. some of those groups where like it is that focused, right? Um, yeah. It would, you know, it'd be interesting to see that in action. I mean, I know with our, like with our code review course, right. The last, you know, half day is them in groups, you know, actually, you know, digging through code, experiencing yeah. it. And like, it's, you know, not me and Ken speaking, um, and I think that's probably the most valuable portion of the course that we give because they are, they're interacting with each other and learning yeah. on the fly as opposed to, Hey, I hear, here's someone speaking at you or here's a video now try mm -hmm. and go do that locally. Right. Absolutely. We, we do a similar thing um, in our kind of foundations and intermediate courses where at the, towards the end we'll do a, a dynamic threat assessment. Now, we don't choose one of the systems they're building in the room because that comes with baggage. Don't don't mm -hmm. inherit their baggage on your course. Um, but as a team, as a class, uh, we will invent a new startup and a new app just on a whiteboard. And it will be scruffy and disgusting in every possible way. There are no you know symbols that are actually in the right place. Uh, but it doesn't matter because what it 
gets the group to do dynamically is create an architecture and then you start seeing them going oh hang on we've, we've been looking at this how would this flow work through it and you're starting to see them do something that they would go and do in their real life but in a kind of a safe way that they don't need to worry about secrets and things being shared um, and they can just have some fun with it um, we've done everything from dating apps for dogs through to friend uh, toy finding software um, you know the, the classes always have some idea to play with and then we use that to kind of really solidify it bring it together yeah yeah that i yeah that, that that sounds great right like that's definitely like in line i know like you know ken and i is thinking from a training perspective because you know, we've gone through multiple iterations on our own as well right like one of one of my you know eye-opening experiences was, you know, doing, you know, cross-site scripting examples with a company and the, having someone raise their hand in the back and they're like, well, how did you know we had cross-site scripting on this, you know, search field? And I'm like, well, we built the app. And they're like, no, 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 on our like internal portal that's over here where they put it in and they got a pop-up. And I was like, well, all right, I guess you get to go fix this now, right? Like, yeah, uh, but that's like a lot more real world-ish. Um, yeah, it, like it, it's encouraging to see. Um, how big is that community like now um, as you've launched Safe, Safe Stack and how, you know, how many people are interacting there on a you know, monthly so basis? So I, I think the community is definitely the hardest thing to grow. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it, uh, we have a lot of communities available to us as software engineers. Um, so we have a pool of about 14,000 learners. I'd say probably 30% are active in the community week to week. Um, okay. But it tends to be quite ad hoc. We've built some mechanisms in that are unusual in our community. We have, for example, when people can ask questions, they can ask it anonymously. So it goes via a, a proxy and comes back in. The reason for that being that, you know, their employers are paying for this training, but the learners then go off and have their own adventure. And the employers are a little bit concerned that, you know, you're going to rock up to a community and go, hey, look at my source code. Uh, I think I have a problem. That's not ideal. We don't want that. And also we have uh, people in 65 countries at last count. And so there's a lot of different cultures and a lot of different kind of operating environments there. So um, it's a small but active community. Um, and it's focused really on those, I'm trying to do a thing. This is really hard. I don't know what I'm doing. What are you doing? Rather than just the, you know, more new sharing and things that happen in those more open communities. Yeah. It, yeah. I did want to, I, I did want to share it. Sorry. I, just real quick. This is something that, that, uh, I thought was really cool. And I was curious if you could tell people a little bit more about it. Obviously I know Seth knows, but this is pretty cool. The, uh, Sorry, let me put it. I have to switch this real quick, solo layout, and then put you up there. So uh, the student sponsorship application mm -hmm. bit, uh, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Um, Absolutely. So this is, like I said at the start, we're really mission driven. Like, you know, we have, we're a team of 21 people. We are 65% women. Uh, we all have cats and dogs and children and uh, from 55 to 18, we're a weird bunch for a security company. We do not look like a standard thing. Um, we're very mission focused and our mission is to make security inclusive and accessible to all the people who are building the amazing things in the world. Now, um, the student sponsorship program is something that is quite unique in this part of the world. I haven't looked much further afield, um, but we've been able to work with some really big name um, folks. So uh, Visa and Zero. Um, to provide free training for a year to any student who is studying with a view to going into the software industry. So they can come and take all of our courses, join the community, come to events, um, whether in their final year or they've been the first year after graduating. Now, the aim of that is really to make sure that every student has the opportunity to start on day zero, day one of their career with some foundation security skills. Some universities do bits of it now, but some don't. Um, some folks come through code academies and things, and they might do some, but it's different in each one. And so this is an attempt, you know, on our part to say, hey, look, this is important. We want to support you. There's no strings. There's no catch. It's not a weird, dirty marketing thing. Um, <laughs> just come along, come and apply. All we ask is that you're a proof, proof of student. Um, so normally they send us a little picture of their ID card or whatever, um, and they're welcomed in, and they can join in with this entire group of uh, folks who are embarking at the start of their career and thinking security uh, from day one. 
By the way, I mean, Seth and I have talked about this. Uh, I don't know which episode, but it was pretty recent. We were talking about, you know, how we wish that because security training in, in school, right. And at university college, whatever you want to call it, um, it, it's either non-existent or incredibly limited. And that leads to mm-hmm. engineers entering the market with no software security skills yeah. or knowledge, or even awareness that that's a thing. Um, and, it, and it's very problematic. So on that note, it's super nice to see someone, you know, cause you, you can go to, I guess, a few ways, but one of two primary ways, I, as I look at it, it's to go and you know speak to those students directly, or somehow otherwise, yeah, be a teacher to those students, or uh, offer a platform where they can you know peruse the catalog at at their their leisure and give them awareness in in that way. Uh, it's a nice yeah. solution. It's, it's it's a really yeah. nice way to kind of address that. I don't know if it's the same where you lot are, but we actually struggle with uh, getting into schools uh, and being part of it thing because almost all of our community, none of us have PhDs. Uh, some of us didn't finish high school. Um, okay. You know, it, we're, we're an eclectic bunch in security and it's part of the beauty of what we do. Um, but it means that when you come to apply to be a professor or whatever at, at some institute, you know, we often don't survive the paper sift for academia. Um, so it, it's, Rather than trying to fight at the academic system and say, hey, yuck, we want to come in and help, which doesn't scale anyway, uh, we're hoping to just supplement, kind of complement what is already going on until perhaps that one day will change and we won't need to exist and we won't need to do that anymore. But, you know, that's a little way off now. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the, the other thing that I've seen in, in academia specifically is just this focus on such low level security problems, right? Extremely yeah. technical Oh, issues with crypto algorithms and ring zero within the kernel space. You know what I mean? Like really serious, like uh, computer science security issues, right? Which, which are relevant. Like when you're, you have some of these like low level exploits that happen, but most software engineers on a day-to-day basis, that's not something that they see, right? Like we, we have this discussion all the time about, you know, Hey, the the amount of just like relevance in those programs is is lacking uh, just mm-hmm. across the board, um, even from like an OWASP top ten. And then even yeah. when you look at the, the you look at the curriculum, what you'll see is they may have a guest lecturer, like someone from the community, come in and speak uh, for one hour during their like yeah. you know network systems or network mm-hmm. security module. And they're going to talk about, you know, Metasploit, right? Or, you know, and it, it doesn't even affect, really affect like software security in general. And so it's, I, I, you know, I, I feel like there's just a huge disconnect. And I think that's what you're speaking to, Laura, is yeah. the disconnect between academia and just the market in general and what we see and what we're doing on a daily basis. Yeah, absolutely. And for me, I think the way that we build software is changing. Um, the, the universities and colleges will kind of get towards this, but, you know, we don't write every piece of it anymore. Um, mm-hmm. That would be a really straight, there's only very few jobs who actually go right down to the, the nitty gritty and, and boot every component themselves. Wait, wait, um, wait. Are you, are you saying that my operating systems design course was not like relevant to my day? I'm, yeah. I'm sorry, Seth. It's I can send not. cupcakes. I know, okay. No, okay. The hurt is real. <laughs> yes. Um, hey, I, I, I remember like the only net computing course I did with any security was about smurfing attacks against Amazon, which was like some really random network protocol attack. God knows how many years ago when Amazon just sold books. So, you know, none of us really were prepared for this horrible future we've inherited. Mm-hmm. Um, but if we look at it, you know, ChatGPT being a really great example that's all over the news right now. Um, I'm not going to waffle on long about that, but if you're going to build solutions out of other components and those components do amazing things, whether it's, you know, visual, visual analysis of things or OCR or, or chat GPT kind of AI tech stuff, then the way you think about security in that is no longer about the OWASP top 10. It's about a completely different set of problems. And I think the challenge we have is even if we get security into our schools and they do start with the OWASP top 10, which, you know, it's great. It's been around a long time. There's still some really strong merit in it. We're still, we're still missing the future 
uh, kind of looking and, you know, how that ecosystem part plays into security, how we're all connected to each other and the vulnerabilities we inherit from other people's codes and systems. Yeah. Uh, I mean, definitely that's, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know how we solve it, right? Like, you know, it's, it's, um, I wish it was easier. Yeah. If we knew how to solve it, we wouldn't want to do it because it's the challenge that we all like. I, I, you don't become a software engineer because it's easy. You do it because you love puzzles and you want to change the world and you want to build something and you want to see that thing work. Mm -hmm. And so if it was a, a simple thing, even as security folk, we'd get bored um, yeah. and we'd do something else. So, you know, uh, there's, there's, there's benefit to it being a hard problem. It means that some good brains are going to think about it. Yeah, yeah, it definitely, yeah, for sure. I mean, we had this this comment or this conversation rather with Andrew Wilson while we were out at CactusCon. Uh, was that last week or the week before? I can't even remember. When was CactusCon? It was recently, within the last two weeks, we'll say. So we had this conversation with Andrew Wilson about training, right? And and so because there's been conversation in our Slack uh, and conversation, obviously, amongst us about the disconnect between academia and the real world. And honestly, that was kind of Andrew's point, which is like, especially in America, specifically in the U.S., our our academic system, it's so disconnected from the practical real world application of whatever thing you're trying to learn, whereas it could be more like a trade school. Right. So and mm. this applies specifically to software engineering and software security. Look, as cool as some of the and, and I think this also goes to, to what you were talking about, Seth, with some level of or some of the, the vulnerabilities and in, in security issues being so high level, it's like, what percentage of security people are ever dealing with that, right? Mm. If, on the whole, it, it really is more like a, a, a trade skill for most people, unless you're doing that high level research or doing whatever. A lot of what we do is we're at, we're AppSec janitors. We're cleaning up messes. We're trying to prevent things from, you know, becoming bigger messes. Um, it's not like we can't train people to have like, it's a repeatable skill. You can learn to do this over and over and over again. Um, and yeah, I, I just agree with everything that's being said here. And I think that's now that I reflect on that conversation with Andrew, it really kind of is, I don't know. I think, it, I think it, it being more treated more like a trade than, than some high level academic yeah. theoretical kind of whatever, not having a tight feed yeah. lap, feedback loop between the, the industry and, and, and academia is a real problem. So. And I, d I don't think it's a one or the other, you know, for the academics listening, you're like, oh, my goodness, it's W pitchforks. It's not that. Um, when I studied, I didn't choose artificial intelligence because it, there was money in it. My goodness, it really wasn't. Um, I picked it because it was a puzzle that I was really interested in. And it let me go deep into something that was just really exciting for four years. Um, and for those folks who really want to think that way, who who thrive on those challenges, you know, there are future technologies that are being spawned in universities right now. They don't know it yet, but they're there. The, the fledgling thoughts that change things. But that leaves 80% of us who our day-to-day -day jobs isn't that. And so I think there's, there's room in the world for both, but I think we need to treat them separately um, and kind of give those folks who want to go deep that space and, and, and encouragement to do that. But then the people who want to build the amazing practical technologies of today, give them the support they need to do security without getting in the way. Well, and I, I mean, this goes back to actually the training and the discussion that you had earlier, at least this piqued my interest, right? Is that, you know, the focus that you've got on threat or, just like uh, a larger kind of subset of what the vulnerabilities could be and could exist. Mm. Just that mindset is different than we've taught for a number of years, like academia specifically, right? Like, because it is going so level, low level is great, right? Like if you are very specific in those cases, but even OWASP top 10 and, and we've seen a migration from OWASP top 10 as well, right? Like the, the most recent list, it's no longer, you know, XSS SQL injection, Absolutely. And, you know, we have it's design. now, yeah, it's now design flaws. It's now, yep. oh, there's authentication problems or access control issues. And um, I mean, so I think there is this uh, shift that we're seeing in the industry with awareness documents, with training in general to be like, okay, we're going to give security testers or software engineers at least a little bit of leeway to decide what that vulnerability is mm. and teach them where the threats are coming in 
as opposed to, oh, you only have to look for SSRF and then you're covered, yeah, yeah. right? Like that's, um, but that's, you know, that, that seems to go back to the courses that you're designing, if I'm, you know, yeah. correct in, in assuming that, right? Like, it seems like the threat is more of, or the threat is more of a focus as opposed to specific vulnerabilities. Yeah, um, I think that's partly, you know, because of my background and the how, how I see the world. Like one of the things we do early in classes when we did it in person, we do it in our online training too, is we teach people to think with that mindset you had when you were young. When you were young, if I asked you to, you know, break into your own home um, and asked you to find 50 ways to do it, you'd have no problem. You would spend a whole afternoon climbing over things, poking things, lifting up things, seeing all of the ways you could tunnel into your own home. And if you ask an adult, they'll come up with three. And most of them are the ones that they'd see in a Hollywood movie. And for some people, they won't even suggest brick in the window. Um, you know, they've already gone down the, I'm going to clone your key and I'm going to see you in a bar. You know, it becomes this big heist thing. There is a really basic skill you have as a kid before schooling, before, you know, learning about law and guidance and rules and employment that we lose. And so for me, the most important skill I can ever give anyone is a playful curiosity for how to use things in a way they were never intended. And that's not about being malicious. I'm not saying you have to be evil. I'm just saying you've got something here that has a lot of potential. And the list over here of what it's supposed to do is small. Show me the other things that you could do. And by doing that, they don't feel like security problems. They feel mm -hmm. like puzzles. They feel like, oh, I didn't think about that. And that triggers that bit of an engineering brain that says, oh, I can fix that. that yeah, that's not intended. That's a bug. Um, it doesn't matter if it's a security bug or a functionality bug. It's still the same thing. We're just teaching that mindset. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, it, yeah. Oh, go ahead. No, I would, I, you know, it, it all goes back to my like, you know, security testers are really just QA testers that document poorly, mm -hmm. right? Like it's, you know, yeah. Ken, sorry, what I, were you going to say? Yeah. Oh, no, I was just going to say this. This sounds like, uh, you know, because you had, you had written a post about, um, well, you know, given all the layoffs, given the lack of budget. And I'm, hey, you know, I, I at GitHub, we're we also had budget slashed and everything like that. No additional headcount. Um, it's reality everyone's facing right now. So you, you had talked a little bit about sort of um, you are the tool, right? Like you are the thing that is, that is at this point, there's probably less spend on additional tools. There's probably mm -hmm. less budget for people. You are the tool. You are the most vital thing you exist as long, you know, as, assuming you're still at where you, where you work, you are the thing that, uh, that is going to have the most amount of impact. This training seems like that definitely falls in line with that, but I'd love to hear your expanded thoughts and, and just a little bit more about that topic. Cause we have lately, you know, obviously we've seen a lot of layoffs. People have been talking about it. Um, so yeah, if you could, I'm, I'm going to be really thoughts there. Yeah, I'll, give, I'll be delicate with my wording because I don't want to annoy half your audience, but I have a kind of a funny relationship with security tools anyway. Um, for me, buying a security tool can be a wonderful thing, but it's like buying a treadmill. Uh, it's only a wonderful thing if you use it every day in the way it's intended and you build those habits and you put it into your lifestyle. Like buying a gym membership. I have owned several gym memberships. I am not the fittest person on the planet. There is something missing between the purchase of a thing and the actual achieving the goal. And for me, education isn't, it's not a, it's not the, the sub player in the space. It's actually the cultivation platform for making everything else work. Um, it gives the behaviors and the mindset and the why do I need to care about this that turns you from having a treadmill that you use as a clothes horse or that you've got cuddly toys on to having something that you're actually using to meet your goal of getting fitter. Or in security tool sense, the number of tools in my consultant career that I ripped out of organizations that were costing $100,000 a year or whatever in service fees and they were never being looked at or they'd never been tuned or, you know, the formats of the reporting were so terrible they couldn't be integrated into any lifecycle known to man. I met a poor company who was spending, they had one analyst on their team whose job, his only job, was to copy-paste findings from a PDF into Jira. Every single time the PDF came in, that's what they did all day long. And so for me, training makes us discerning. It, it teaches us what we what is valuable and what is not and how to get the most out of it. And then when it comes to tooling, if you are lucky enough to have budget, if you can expand that outwards, 
then you can get more value from it. But if you start with the training, you can always do stuff on your own. Let's face it, most security tools, again, I'm going to annoy some people, really sorry, you're going to have hmm. feelings and opinions, are a lot of regexts in a pretty dress. And that's fine. That's cool. It does a job. It's an efficiency play. It's not a deep tech play most of the time. So if we take that view on it, then why not put all your hands to work and do it the manual way right now rather than wait for the tools if budgets are tight? Um, now, I know there's a lot of compromise in that. There's a lot of people who already have way too much to do. But again, you know, I'm not here to say, hey, it's all practical and we can all do it. But this is my view for it. Um, we can do a lot small things each that adds up to a massive change without needing tools. Yeah, I mean, that's what I took away from the post. It was, it was more empowering um, kind of kind of hang in there, uh, you know, yeah. push for what you can. Um, your company still needs you, right? Uh, yeah. Advocate for the things you need to advocate for. So I took it as a very like, uh, yeah, as a very positive, um, as a very positive message. Uh, and I think, I think it's needed right now. You know, it's, it's, I know it's been tough for, for, for some folks out there and, you know, this was before the, the even more recent layoffs that you wrote this, this was a couple months ago. So, yeah. so in that time we've seen, I think a 7% decline in NCC's headcount. We've seen all that. I can name everybody. At Zoom. Yep. Zoom. Yeah. Everybody's Microsoft, you know, my parent comp, the parent company, at least for another 10 days. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sorry. I'm, I'm leaving. So anyways, um, I did have a couple platform questions though, for sure. you, um, some specific ones, just cause, uh, these are, these are things that's, I mean, I know Seth and I years ago faced a little bit of this. So, um, one thing I was curious about is have you run up against like SCORM compliant? Um, it, well, yeah, Seth is chuckling because we, we, as so for our platform, we, you know, back when that existed, we, we were trying to make it such that the, the exercises were very practical, very realistic. But the issue that we come up against was that it would need to work with our platform. And mm -hmm. we had these conversations over and over again, trying to explain that, like, yes, I know you have your SCORM compliance system where all your courses get uploaded. And those courses are garbage, and there's a reason. <laughs> and uh, and there's so, anyways, no one wants to use them. Yeah, exactly, exactly. There's a reason nobody is using them. So, um, anyways, I'm just curious if you run up against that, um, and, and if so, if you've how you've yeah. managed to, to handle those questions. Yeah. So, there's a couple of things that we do to make this a little easier. So, that for the smaller organizations, they they don't mostly have an LMS of their own, at least not in this part of the world. So, it's a it's an easier situation for them. So, we have the courses which are all in SCORM. Um, while some of them present like videos, they're built in SCORM so that they can be compliant with the systems, um, and we have uh, SCORM hosting separated from our main platform so that we can integrate with other systems easier. We do cross LMS integrations with a number of the largest integration providers, so people like Bridge LMS, so you can view our courses in your own LMS. And we've also created wrappers for our, we've got a bunch of labs that we've built in various bits of AWS, and we've actually created SCORM wrappers around those so that uh, even if you're in, you know, whatever LMS in your big corporate environment, you can still safely do those and pull it through to your reporting. It took quite a bit of conscious effort for that. You know, we're two years yeah. in as a platform. I'd say, you know, we had a Frankenstein's monster at day one of like awful, awful technology that we don't speak about in polite company. Um, it's yeah. a lot better now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a lot better now, uh, mainly because we've rewritten it from the ground up. Um, but that, that kind of complexity and in that integration that has to happen for larger organizations in particular. Um, I think that can be really limiting to innovation. So it's something that we're really, really keen to not say, hey, all right, we'll have to go back and do it the same way everyone else does. We see it as a reason to try and be a bit more creative instead. Well, that's a very creative way to solve that problem. I have to say uh, that, that's very, very awesome. Um, how you how you're able to, to create that translation and, and actually, you know, meet their needs. Um, the other one I, I had was actually more of just a, not a specific, but I'm, I'm curious if you've, uh, to your platform only, I'm actually just curious if you see people, um, what, one thing we had, uh, discussed was having, um, yeah, like when issues are identified in a certain category of a category of vulnerability, mm. linking out to the training, um, yeah. to training content for that vulnerability. I'm curious if you're seeing people use 
if you're seeing people use the platform in that way, and if so, you know, where is it? Are they finding value from it? It's pretty general. We, we've had some we've had some initial conversations about that. Um, there's interest. To be honest, the the people who are most interested are the people who are managing the security tools, not necessarily engineers. And so we try and be very careful with that sort of validation conversation because a lot of security tools get thrown at dev teams. And the dev team's like, yeah, what is this? Um, this, you know, this does not work in my world. Um, so we're kind of very taking a very slowly, gently approach to that. What I would like is for us to be kind of on demand, but I don't think the the kind of rash of IDE integrations we're seeing is the way to do it. Um, because your ID is loud as it is, um, and shoehorning more into more IDs isn't isn't helpful. So I think it was a lot of words for me saying I don't know yet, but we're seeing it. But I've I've got some reservations about it, the angle that it's taking right now. Um, so I would like the the, the format and how this works to be more driven by what the engineers need than what the security tools and and those mm. kind of flows outside of the the pure software folks uh, would like to do. Yeah, I guess that I guess that could be um, there. That could be difficult, you know, if you're if if it's a very broad category like you have an authorization flaw. Well. <laughs> That's pretty tough to, what cor, which course do you send somebody for, for that? Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and for us, I can say it's, it's, uh, I mean, of course the actual write-ups and titles and everything, but when we go to categorize, it's a pretty coarse grain, uh, mm. like that, like authorization failure. Right. So, um, I could I mean, see that being problematic. Just, yeah. just that alone. Yeah. The, the angle I would love to see and it's something, you know, it'll be a way off for us, but kind of a direction of travel is I don't think we can give people context specific advice that's going to be relevant uh, in that way. I just don't think it's possible. But there are some things that we can help with. So for example, if somebody is writing a feature that includes authorization or it includes, you know, X scenario that touches some kind of security control, then is there a way for us to very simply help produce the Cucumber style tests of that. So rather than saying how to fix the problem, how do we test that problem exists in a repeatable way? Um, so kind of, it's still giving the engineers that mm. kind of control over how it is implemented and how it works for them, but it's giving them some frameworks and guidelines they can use to make assessment of whether they've met that criteria or not. And I think the judgment for whether they're successful still needs to stay with the engineers. They know that system and its nuance is much better than we can do as outsiders. So I think for, for us, from our viewpoint, the future is more around supporting engineering teams on doing these things with less pain, um, but still giving them the control over what the solution might be. That's a fascinating take on it to uh, build the authorization test cases that would be necessary to prevent this in the future or even test for regression. Um, and then that be, that's the training. Cause that, that is what a dev understands. Yeah, I mean, pretty much. Um, I, I, I want the, the tools that I would need to support me. And one of the things I've always wanted is it for it to be easier to have a really good set of tech test cases for the code I'm writing. Um, <laughs> I, I once wrote some deeply painful recursive Python that wrote test cases for me. Never do this, team. It's a bad idea. <laughs> um, but it, the reason I spent time on it is because it was pain that I was experiencing all the time. And I was like, this is this is predictable. There's only a certain set of permutations here that could exist. So, yeah, we'll see. Um, but that's the direction I would like to travel. Yeah, that's a. I like that take. I mean, that makes a lot. I mean, not that it matters, but I, I think that's a really that's a really good. Uh, I really like that. I mean, because I think it. Because I mean, why I'm saying that is, uh, to your point, we, when we when we find bugs, it is it's not even as simple as like, well, we'll go look at it, like insecure object reference or something like that or missing function. Well, it's yeah. usually very nuanced, and it's something that's not. It's very like platform specific. It's something wasn't included or considered that uh, you know for a, maybe a given actor type or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, maybe we didn't make the right considerations for for access level or whatever. Something very it's usually very nuanced and very yeah. context specific. So I guess uh, that lines up, yeah, pretty well with what yeah. you're what you're saying. It would be hard for me I, to throw blanket training. I really there. do want app tech specialists and pen testers. I want to make them sweat in the nice way, um, you know, yeah. because those bugs, those are the high value ones that take a lot of time. And if they're distracted with the other stuff, they're not going to be able to find as many of them. 
Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, you talk about the low hanging fruit. I don't know. I, like it, it's interesting that you're talking about that from a training perspective, because that is one thing that we've noticed in the, like the consulting space is the, the section of our like reporting where we actually walk through like reproduction steps in detail. Since I come from a development background and I'm like, Hey, as a QA tester, I need to be able to replicate this. So I'm going to give you the same thing, right? Yeah. Like it's replicatable. You can go and drop that to your QA testers. They're going to be able to say whether or not that vulnerability exists. You don't have to mm -hmm. come back to me because you already know, right? You get the positive yeah. negative, but it's interesting to take that to the full extent of, Oh, okay. So why don't we train developers to write the unit tests around that as opposed to, hey, you're just going to go exploit SQL injection and then you know walk away from it. That's probably mm -hmm. a better translation into their day-to-day -day activities. I, yeah, I'm mm -hmm. with you there. It's also language and platform agnostic. Um, mm -hmm. One of the most dangerous things I've seen is people going very hard and deep on the security of the one language or framework that they you know, consider to be their primary. Um, I once was employed by a, a company and they were high growth and they absolutely swore on day one they were a Java shop. And by day three, we found 12 <laughs> languages, including Erlang, in play. So this gives you that flexibility to whatever you happen to be building out of. I don't judge. I'm a COBOL developer, you know. Um, but whatever you're building out of, those can be applied. And that gives us a flexibility to adapt our technologies as things go faster and change without the security needing to reinvent itself each time. Mm -hmm. So uh, uh, along those lines, right, like you're talking about the different people, like the software engineers that you have in in your courses, in your communities, are you seeing um, an equal representation of not just like the code slingers that are doing that on a daily basis, but even like QA, you know, other testers as well? Is, is, are you seeing that pick up there? Yeah, we, we've got a, a really interesting mix. Uh, we do have, you know, a big core of what we call uh, the software craftsman or craftsperson mm -hmm. developers. So people who want to kind of really go hard and, and be the best they can be. We have a whole bunch of people early in their career with all of the energy. And I, I love them because, uh, you know, they're just everywhere all at once. And there's lots of questions. And we've got a whole bunch of QAs who I think have been undervalued for a while, if I'm completely honest. Um, they've not been given a lot of training. I looked at the syllabuses for the major testing frameworks that are now for security. And unless they wanted to actually be a pen tester, they weren't particularly helpful. So um, they've been really enjoying be being welcomed and being part of it and realizing it's not about writing the code. It's actually their, their skills are a superpower. We've also got some BAs and UX people, which are just fascinating because whenever you're teaching something about a defensive control that affects the UX, They've got a whole perspective that nobody ever listens to about what what's going to happen as a result. So I we will be looking in the future to doing a set of courses on where security meets accessibility and usability because it's it's a minefield. So, yeah, we've, we've got this really lovely, diverse community of and we want to continue to welcome all the roles because software doesn't just get written by people who write code. Yeah. Software is built by a, an entire team. So how, how are you, are you going to pop? I would love to. I would I would love to see if you have a talk or, or you write about how accessibility and security meet. I think that's fascinating. And so are you, are you planning on talking about it? Uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah awesome. Absolutely. Well, like, um, we need um, to follow up then. Yeah. And, yeah. And, uh, yeah, yeah absolutely. I will keep you that. posted. Yeah, because we do we we do want to be cognizant of your time, right? Like you know, we, we have been going for an hour, and it, it's fascinating. I feel like we could we could continue the discussion um, um, for sure. But you know, along those lines, if people want to follow up with you, like where can they find you? Are there conferences awesome. or anything? Um, yeah. So um, the first one coming up is Confu in Montreal. Uh, which okay. will be uh, the 20th-ish of February. So if any Canadian dev team folks are, are going to be nearby, I would love to have a chat. Um, also coming over to do Render uh, in Atlanta in the end of May, beginning of June. So we're running a workshop um, and I'll be doing a talk. But it's what I would say is I actually just genuinely love meeting dev teams and chatting. Um, we, you know, you don't try and hard sell to a dev team. What you do is you listen, and that's the best thing you can ever do. So if you want to have a chat, or if there's a conference that you uh, would like, you know, a new perspective at, we're always looking at exciting places to come and say hello to. 
Um, and finally, you can find me on the Twitters and things as lady underscore nerd. Um, and just kind of come follow along. Uh, more than welcome. Finally, uh, if you want to get started with this, um, no budgets required. We have a free plan that is free forever for as long as you need it. Um, we're about to massively increase the seat counts as well. So you can have a, a look at that. Um, so come along. And even if you're a teeny tiny, like, you know, open source project and you want to get started on it, everyone's welcome. So just come along, sign up to the free plan. It's listed from the website, safestack.io. And we'll see you there. Great. Yeah, I, I mean, we really appreciate the discussion today, Lauren, you taking the time out to come chat with us. Um, it's been insightful from my perspective, uh, definitely interesting space to watch. And we will, yeah, we'll, we'll keep an eye on it. And then, you know, when you start getting into the accessibility stuff, let's let's have another discussion, because I think that could be very Absolutely. interesting to talk through. So, very, cool. very interesting. Yeah. Awesome. Well, uh, watch the space and uh, thank you for having me. Yeah. Ken, anything else before on. we close up today? No, I just appreciate your time, Laura. It's been an amazing conversation. And uh, thanks for, of course, for everybody. We've had a lot of, I, I apologize. There's some questions that came up last minute. I can't have you answer just because we're at, we're at time. But uh, there have it's been a good uh, conversation also in our Slack. So uh, for those who are not in our Slack, go in there. There's some links and there's some conversation and stuff like that. So anyways, every, thank awesome. you, everyone. Appreciate it. All right. Thanks, everybody. Talk to you all next week.